Thank you, Emma, and thank you guys for those announcements. Um, as, uh, as Emma said, my name is Andrew. I'm the campus minister with uh, RUF at Davidson, and I'm also a Davidson graduate, class of 2010, uh, back during the time of free laundry and landline phones, believe it or not. Every, every freshman uh, was issued their own landline. You probably don't even know what that is. Um, but I'm really excited uh, for tonight. Tonight's our first large group of the semester. And um, we're starting this series uh, really out of the Book of Lamentations, which is a book in the Old Testament. Uh, if you have a Bible, you, you'll find Lamentations between uh, Jeremiah and Ezekiel. And we're calling this series Good Grief, Ancient Songs for Today's Sorrows. And kind of in the spirit of the upcoming holiday uh, on the 14th, I'm going to channel my inner Romeo uh, and go ahead and ask, what's in a name? Uh, so you, maybe you came to RUF Large Group for the Bible teaching. You, you stay for the dad jokes, right? Um, but what's in a name? Uh, we're calling this series Good Grief really, really because it has two meanings. The first is, uh, you know, as we look back over the last year, even, even the past few months, uh, it's hard not to feel like Charlie Brown and be completely dejected. I mean, I don't, I don't know about you, but I am tired. And I'm not just talking about like not getting enough sleep or a really, really strenuous workout tired. I, I am weary. I have this deep, like bone aching fatigue um, that I'm carrying with me. And, and, and honestly, I feel like it's the accumulation of, of all that's come on, uh, come to pass these last uh, nine to 12 months. I mean, with the, with the pandemic and the social distancing, uh, with all the grim uh, news headlines that seemingly never end, uh, all these deep uh, fissures and divisions in our country, um, all the racial injustices that have been in our nation for a while, but uh, are, have just become so evident um, of late. I'm just tired. Um, and tonight from Lamentations, what we're going to see is that not only is it okay to feel like Charlie Brown, um, the Bible actually gives us language to express these feelings. Uh, that's why we're calling it ancient songs uh, for today's sorrows. Uh, but really the second reason why we're calling this good grief is because look, it, it's actually good to grieve. And, and, and biblical grief, also called lament, it's redemptive. Uh, as a friend of mine has said and likes to say, the ultimate purpose of grief isn't to be sad, though sadness does play a huge role in it. No, the ultimate purpose of grief is to be healed. And so as we come to the Bible tonight, let me ask you, what griefs are troubling you tonight? What sorrows are weighing heavily on you? Take those with you as we come together to God and listen to his word tonight. So we're going to be looking at Lamentations chapter one. Uh, I believe you have the, the handout or the PDF 
um, already, but I'm gonna go ahead and read from this PDF as it's on your screen. So this is, this is God's word for, for us this evening. How lonely sits the city that was full of people. How like a widow has she become, she who was great among the nations, she who was a princess among the provinces has become a slave. Judah has gone into exile because of affliction and hard servitude. She dwells now among the nations, but finds no resting place. Her pursuers have all overtaken her in the midst of her distress. All her people groan as they search for bread. They trade their treasures for food to revive their strength. Look, O Lord, and see, for I am despised. Is it nothing to you, all you who pass by? Look and see if there is any sorrow like my sorrow which was brought upon me, which the Lord inflicted on the day of his fierce anger. For these things I weep, my eyes flow with tears, for a comforter is far from me, one to revive my spirit. My children are desolate, for the enemy has prevailed. My groans are many, and my heart is faint. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray together. Father of mercies, God of all comfort, would you speak to us tonight? For we, your people, are listening. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. What songs would you say all Americans know? What songs do all Americans know? And, and we'll do something a little different. This can be interactive if you'd like. Feel free to drop uh, a song name in the chat feature. Um, but, but, but think for a second, what songs does every American know? What songs do all Americans know? I can, I can think of a few. Right? Or or right? I saw I saw a twinkle twinkle little star. Don't stop believing. These are songs that most every American knows. Now, of all the songs that you came up with, um, of all the songs that you thought about, how many of these songs help us as Americans express grief? I mean, can you think of any, even one? Several years ago, a good friend of mine, he was teaching a seminary class on Lamentations, on this book that we're in. And he made this comment uh, in one of his lectures, that we don't have this genre, that is the genre of lament in our American life. We just don't have it. And at that comment, one of the students, a, a Korean student named Philip, he actually immediately raised his hand and shared with this class full of Americans that Koreans, 
they actually have songs of lament that every Korean knows and, and, and could use when the occasion called for it. These songs were written not out of necessarily a desire, but out of necessity. You see, during the Korean War, which ended in 1953 with, a, with an armistice, with a ceasefire, three million people died, many or most of whom were civilians. It was the deadliest conflict in East Asia, more deadly even than the Vietnam War. The casualties on the Korean Peninsula represented 10% of the entire population. Translate that to, to America today, that would be the equivalent of 33 million Americans losing their lives. In the winter of 1951 alone, more than 50,000 South Korean National Defense Corps soldiers starved to death. This was a horrific military conflict. And the people that survived were surrounded by death. So how did they process their terrible grief and, and go on to become one of the, the most successful, one of the largest economies in the world in just the span of one lifetime? Well, I wonder if in part it's because they composed and sang songs of lament. You see, this book, the Book of Lamentations, has been called a funeral dirge for a city. And we'll dig into the historical circumstances surrounding this book in just a second. But for right now, consider how foreign a concept that is for us modern Americans. I mean, it used to be, even, even in America, it used to be years ago, decades ago, that when someone died, the grieving family would, would shut tight the drapes of the house. They would, they would wear black armbands out in public. They would wear black ties to signify their mourning. But today, funerals have been replaced by celebration of life ceremonies. Not only that, in general, American church services today reflect an aversion to sorrow. Our music, our preaching, even the way that we greet one another, they all communicate that we must be happy all the time. We worship happiness and we loathe sadness. And so those who are suffering in the church can oftentimes feel silenced, trapped, misunderstood, and isolated, with seemingly nowhere to turn and no way out. But over and against our cultural aversion to grief, the Book of Lamentations declares, you are free to grieve. You are free to grieve. And specifically, it tells us that we are free to do three things. First, we're free to acknowledge what has happened. Second, we're free to bring God and others into it. And third, we are free to cry. So that's our outline for tonight. Let's jump right in. 
So the first thing we read and see in Lamentations is that we are free to acknowledge what has happened. Uh, the book begins by revisiting the worst day in Israel's history. And it goes on to record in vivid detail the horrors of that day. Look again at verses one and three. How lonely sits the city that was full of people. How like a widow has she become. She who was great among the nations, she who was a princess among the provinces has become a slave. And then in verse three, Judah has gone into exile because of affliction and hard servitude. She dwells now among the nations, but finds no resting place. Her pursuers have all overtaken her in the midst of her distress. These verses recount the destruction of Jerusalem in 586 BC and the subsequent captivity of God's people at the hands of the Babylonian empire led by King Nebuchadnezzar. Now this is something that really happened. It's, it's recorded in the Bible in 2 Kings chapters 24 and 25, but it's also recorded in, in multiple extra biblical texts. And not only that, archeological findings corroborates the, this historical event. But not only did it happen, here we see in Lamentations that a survivor, or some people think maybe possibly multiple survivors, we, we're, we don't have time to go into the issue of authorship uh, tonight. But not, not only did it happen, but a survivor, he memorialized the events in poetic form. He wrote, he wrote poetry about it. And these poems have been recited and sung in worship of God for thousands of years. So Jews still recite this book on the ninth of Av, which is a day of fasting and mourning, and in particular mourning the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. But Christians too, certain Christians read and even sing this book during Lent, during Holy Week, or even on Good Friday. And, and before moving on, it's just worth acknowledging that, that songs, songs affect us more than just written prose. Compare a Shakespearean sonnet with just a paragraph out of a historical textbook, a history textbook, which sticks with you, right? It's gonna be the poetry, the song. The point of Lamentations is, is look, it, 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 it's helping you not overlook or forget or jump over your grief. The point of Lamentations is that this would stick with you, that, that, that you wouldn't just read this book and move on. And I would encourage you, you know, th throughout the next several weeks, go, go and read this book in its, in its entirety. But the point's not just read it once and move on, but the point is to internalize this, to bring it into you and make it a part of you, to make it your own. Now, how do we, how do, we do this? How do we internalize not just the message of Lamentations, but, but maybe even especially what Lamentations models for us? 
me just get really practical here and say one of the ways we internalize this book is by taking an inventory of our own losses and griefs, just as the author of this book did for, for God's people during the destruction of Jerusalem, we ought to take an inventory of our losses and griefs. Carve out time in your schedule. Maybe go find a, a quiet place to sit for a little while or, or maybe go on a walk. And starting with the most recent events, work your way back, chronicling the losses that you've experienced, the griefs that you've accumulated over time the betrayals, the deaths, the injuries, the abuses, the dashed hopes, the unfulfilled dreams. Take that list and record it somewhere, maybe on your phone using like a note app or maybe in a journal. And, and, and don't just record the event itself, also record your experience of it. How did it affect you emotionally, spiritually, psychologically, mentally? This practice in and of itself, it can and it can be and oftentimes is healing just on its own. But maybe you're wondering, okay, if I go ahead and do that, what will keep me from just kind of spinning my wheels and just kind of wallowing in my grief? And this brings us to our second point. We are to bring God and others in. So look at verse 11 on your, on your handout. This is in reference to Jerusalem, who's personified as a woman here. In verse 11, it says, All her people groan as they search for bread. They trade their treasures for food to revive their strength. Look, O Lord, and see, for I am despised. And then verse 12. Is it nothing to you, all you who pass by? Look and see if there is any sorrow like my sorrow, which was brought upon me, which the Lord inflicted on the day of his fierce anger. In the midst of suffering brought on by starvation, Personified Jerusalem, Lady Jerusalem, cries out to God and says, Look, O Lord, and see, for I'm despised. I'm despised. That, that word, uh, it means worthless. I'm worthless. I'm useless. I'm discarded. I'm cast aside. The, the, the King James Version translates that word vile. I'm vile. I'm untouchable. Has your grief, has your suffering ever made you feel untouchable, discarded, almost like you're lower than dirt? That's how God's people feel here. And they are calling out to God to notice them in that lowest of low states. So they call on God, they bring God in, but, but keep reading in verse 12, they, they actually invite others in as well. They say, look, is it nothing to you, all of you who pass by? Look and see if there's any sorrow like my sorrow. So now their attention's turned from God and, and, and to their neighbors, uh, who up until this point, the neighbors, 
surrounding countries, they, they had taken no notice of Jerusalem's suffering. Uh, but, but, but not only is Jerusalem saying, look at how miserable we are here, they're challenging these neighbors, these passerbys, to come up with any known example of greater sorrow. Can you even imagine greater sorrow than the sorrow that we have right now? A couple of things to think about before we move on here. As Americans, we see ourselves as rugged individuals, able to pick ourselves up by our own bootstraps. So anything that even remotely smells of self-pity or wallowing in sadness is inherently un-American. It's not life, liberty, and display of sadness. It's life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. And that's just American culture. That's not even getting at the, the Davidson idols. The Davidson idols of competency, excellence, efficiency, achievement, grief, is the opposite of all these things. So why in the world would we showcase them to others? But according to the Bible, one of the best things we can do with our grief is to let others see it. Now, not only all of that, but, but by default, a lot of us assume that God is distant from us in our suffering. And again, this assumption is reinforced by the songs that we sing in worship, 85, 95% of which are upbeat and happy and inspiring motivational songs. We, th this assumption that God's distant from us in our suffering is reinforced also by the passages that we hear preached on. I mean, how many of you have heard uh, sermons preached out of Lamentations or the book of Job or the Psalms? of lament. There's, of, of the 150 psalms in the Bible, a third of them are psalms of lament, of grief, of sorrow, of mourning. And, and then just think about the spiritual wisdom, the spiritual counsel that we've received. You know, we've been told, look, if, if you're a Christian, you need to learn to be content in all things. Which, to be fair, that there is a verse in the Bible that does say that. Paul says in Philippians 4, 11 through 13, that he's learned how to be content in all things. But when that verse is pulled out of context, it gives the impression that what the Bible teaches is that happiness is good and sadness is bad. So be happy for Jesus, right? That's more or less what we've been taught. And so the net result of all of this is that we believe that we have to be happy in order to be with God. That on some level, God can't be with us in our grief and sadness. Or, or maybe if he can, he doesn't want to. He'd prefer not to. Come back when you're happy. But Lamentations holds a very, a very different assumption. Lamentations assumes that God is accessible in our abject grief. That he hears and sees us when grief makes us feel completely worthless 
and useless. And that God is willing and able to enter in. In the writings of the prophet Isaiah, uh, who lived about 150 years before uh, Lamentations was written. Um, so so, so the, the author of Lamentations would have been familiar with Isaiah and his writings. But, but, but in the book of Isaiah, uh, the prophet writes that God's divine servant, the one who would come and bring salvation and who would rescue God's people, he is described as being despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Not only that, as you read into the Gospels, you see that Jesus is portrayed as the God who draws near to people in their grief, who draws near in, to people in their grief and pain, who sees and listens to a father who's at the end of his rope because his little girl has just died. Jesus is the God who cries violent, angry sobs outside of his, friend's, his friend Lazarus's tomb. He's the God who promises blessing not to the joyful, but to the mourning. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 4. He's the God who said to his closest friends, right before his betrayal and arrest, my soul is sorrowful, even to death. God is not turned away or put off by your grief. Look, some of you have been carrying this heavy burden for far too long. The burden to be happy, to be joyful, to be okay, to be put together. And look, I say this with love, but that is a false gospel. That is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is a gospel of works. The works of being cheerful, of putting on a brave face, of smiling, smiling through the pain. Look, you are not saved by your joy in the Lord. You are saved by his joy in you. Speaking of Jesus, Hebrews says, for the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross. And so the, the fact of the matter is, you don't have to go looking for God in your grief. He is already there, right there with you. In fact, it brings him joy to be there with you in your grief. But before we, before we move on to our last point, let me just say one, one more thing. If you, if you happen to notice uh, the rest of verse 12, um, and maybe, maybe those words, that verse uh, is making you wonder, wait a second, so does God actually allow or maybe even send suffering? Um, you got a short answer and a long answer. The short answer is yes, but it pains him to do so. 
And the longer answer we're going to have to unpack over the next several weeks, but, but I'll say two things real quick. Uh, the first thing that, that I'll say is God is love. The Bible makes that clear. God is love. Therefore, God's wrath, his judgment, must be understood as his love directed at corruption, at cruelty, at evil, at wickedness, and yes, at sin. And then also, look, throughout the entire Bible, what we see is judgment is always the last resort, but it's never the final word. And the purpose of God's judgment is to, to vindicate and restore his people. It's meant to bring about true repentance, which God always meets with forgiveness and abundant grace. Okay, this brings us to our last point, and it's the shortest one. Not only are we free to acknowledge what's happened, and we're free to bring God and bring others in, we are also free to cry. We're free to cry. Uh, look again at verse 16 and the second part of verse 22. For these things I weep, my eyes flow with tears. For a comforter is far from me, one to revive my spirit. My children are desolate, for the enemy has prevailed. My groans are many, and my heart is faint. All I'll say is this. The Bible gives us permission to weep. To weep. And not just one or two tears and we're done. But to weep uncontrollably. To let the tears pour out freely. We see this right here in verse 16 and verse 22, but it is all over the place in this book and, and even in chapter one. I mean, I didn't put this on the handout, but, but you can go back and look at verse 20, which says, my stomach churns and my heart is wrung within me. In other words, you can let your gut wrench over your grief and sorrow. Or verse 21 which says, hear my groaning, yet there is no one to comfort me. In verse 22, which we read, my groans are many, my heart is faint. Look, the Bible gives you permission to literally groan, to let your grief manifest itself in tears, in heartache, in audible groans, in, in bodily, these bodily expressions of grief, they're not something that you need to be ashamed of or embarrassed by. They're not a sign of faithlessness or lack of trust. They are a sign of humanity. They are a sign that you love that which is good and right and true and beautiful in this world. They're a sign that you actually love life. So maybe right now you're thinking, okay, Andrew, that's kind of a bit much. I'm not really the kind of, you know, sit down and sob kind of type. I get that, fair enough. But look, if you can't muster tears or groans, then at least let yourself get a lump in your throat. At least give yourself permission to just sit in sadness for a while. Shakespeare once wrote, give sorrow words, the grief that does not speak, whispers the overfraught heart and bids it 
break. A friend of mine who is the RUF campus minister uh, at Vanderbilt in Nashville, uh, Richie Sessions is his name. Uh, he's told me on a number of occasions that, that some of his students uh, they'll, they'll occasionally share some really hard stuff with him, like some real tragedies, real life tragedies, real griefs. And, um, you know, as you can imagine a Vanderbilt student, and I can imagine a Davidson student uh, asking this, but they'll ask Richie, okay, so, so what do I do with this? What do I do with this? Right? Like, help me, help me fix this. What, what, what do I do with this grief? And Richie says that his response more, more often than not is just, he'll look at them and he'll say, be sad, be sad. That's, that's your response. In other words, weep, cry, let it, let it out, explore your sadness. And so as we close tonight, I just, I wanna encourage you uh, to do one thing, and it's very, very practical. Take that inventory of griefs, that, that list of losses that we talked about earlier, and find one person you trust who you can share that list with. Maybe it's your best friend. Maybe it's a parent, a roommate, a coach, a teammate, or even your friendly neighborhood RUF campus minister or intern but find someone that you can share your grief with. And, and look, to the extent that that person is a good listener and is compassionate, she or he can and will represent God to you. So go ahead and share your griefs with God by sharing them with a trusted friend. But, but, but here's the real beauty of sharing your griefs with someone. And if you hear nothing else tonight, please hear this. When you go and share your griefs with somebody else, you actually represent God to them. God came to earth in the person of Jesus Christ, not just to save us from our sins, but to let us see him in all of his griefs. Jesus was raised from the dead, not just to defeat death, but to let us see his scars, the scars in his hands and his feet and his side. Look, only Christians can say, our God, he grieved. Our God lamented. Our God was heartbroken. Our God suffered. And look, he didn't hide it. He let us see him cry. And so when you let others see you cry, you bear God's image to them. I mean, how beautiful is that? How dignifying is that? So consider all the scars that you've accumulated over your life. Consider the scars that you've yet to accumulate, whether they're physical or emotional or spiritual. We have a God who has scars. He knows your griefs. He knows your pain. And so if you've ever been afraid of oversharing your hardships with others, if you've been 
afraid of being that person, that guy or that girl who backs up the emotional dump truck and just dumps your burdens on someone else. I'm there, that's me, I'm talking to myself here. But you need to remember, I need to remember, we need to remember that we represent Christ himself, the suffering servant of God, when we let others see our grief and, and see us in our grief. So acknowledge what's happened, bring God and bring others in and cry because in Christ, you are free to grieve. Would you pray with me?